0: All right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is April 23rd, the year of our Lord, 2020. Still locked down, still coming to you though. Really glad that you are with us. If you're watching live, go ahead and hit that thumbs up. Get us over 50 so that we can trend and then set all kinds of new records like we did the other night. New viewership record, Colin tells me, last Sunday night. And we like to do that every week. So we're happy to have you here. We came on an hour early tonight. Your eyes are not deceiving you. We um, Like I said on Twitter earlier today, We are not the USFL. We do not fancy ourselves as being ready to take on the NFL quite yet. So NFL drafts tonight, we said, we'll go ahead and cede that to you. We'll get out of the way. We'll get in here and get out early. And so we've got a packed show for you. I got a lot to get to tonight. I've got uh, some notes about the podcast. I put out a feeler for you last week, and you responded. And so I've got some more details for that. If you're listening on the podcast, we appreciate you joining us. And if you haven't explored the opportunity to download the podcast, do that. There's a link in the show description below right now. If you're watching on YouTube, click there. And if you go there, give us one of those five-star reviews and a brief summary and description below. We really, really, really benefit from that. So here's where we're going tonight, what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to start the show off by clearing up and this is my fault, sort of a misnomer. It's not that I misspoke, it's that I didn't speak enough, believe it or not, sometimes I do leave things out about what the qualification should be, according to us here in the For and No More Club. We don't believe in playoff expansion, but yet I said some things, I think, that maybe misled some of you, and as you can see, in this very, very wordy email that Lee sent me, or Ryan sent me, it's a good email, it's wordy, but there are a lot of, a lot of good thoughts here, I think he summed up a lot of the misconceptions, so I'm going to lead the show with that, and I'm also going to talk tonight a lot more about Ohio State and what they're doing, which is now bordering historic proportions. I think literally as we were sitting in here getting ready to come on the air, they landed another top 100 player. Um, I'm told they can't take all the top 100 kids. The math just doesn't add up. So there will be some left over for the rest of you. You may have to wait a little while, but there will be some left over. And I teased this the other night, Sunday night. I'm going to do it tonight. I got some ideas from you guys too. The Chicago Bulls documentary, if you watched parts one and two of the eventual, I think it will be an eight part series Sunday night. Dirty words on ESPN. How about that? Dirty language. Scottie Pippen. You didn't want to watch your summer? Shame on you. But... What I thought is, in fantasy land, in hypothetical land, if we could have taken that same idea and followed a team, or a coach, or a program for a certain era of time, what would you have liked to seen, and what would you have called them? And we got some really, really good submissions. I have a sneaking suspicion I'm gonna go way longer than I should on that particular topic tonight. So let's get it started, and by the way, again, If you're watching, go ahead and hit that thumbs up button. Get us over uh, 50 uh, while you're at it. Ryan emailed me the other night. We had talked, I think, at pretty good length a couple of shows ago about why I was against playoff expansion. No radical concepts, really. I just think it really devalues the regular season. I've got reasons. If you want to know them, you can go back and you can find those videos on the YouTube channel. A lot of you have been watching that. We've had really good traffic on those videos. But Ryan reaches out to me, as I always encourage you to do. I put my Twitter handle at the bottom. That's probably the quickest way to get in touch with me. But also, I put my personal email address at the bottom. When Colin shows you that bio, lower third, it has my email address there. And I do it because of emails like this. So Ryan reaches out to me the other day. He says, let me state my position. I want an eight team college football playoff with the power five champs getting auto bids, which I am against with three bids for the best teams that didn't win their respective conference. Now you say that you prefer the best teams be chosen regardless of whether or not they're conference champions. That's correct. I do say that. But, Ryan continues, you also say you believe further expansion would ruin the regular season. That is also correct. Ryan continues again, it's my opinion regular season is more threatened by the idea that the best teams should go than it could ever be threatened by an eight-team playoff. Now, I disagree fundamentally with that, but in his next paragraph, I think he hits on a really good point, so it's very important not to differentiate his idea of best versus my idea of best. How do we define best, okay, because he is at a fundamental disagreement on the structure of the playoff, and we're probably at an impasse there. But I want you to listen closely to this because this is a really good point. Ryan continues, the argument about which teams are best always comes down, understandably, to the talent currently on the roster. This is not true for everyone, but it is true for a lot of people. A lot of people, when they're confused at the end of the year and they're trying to power-rate teams, quote-unquote, they'll just shift to their default, well, who's the most talented team? Not that 99% of them are qualified to analyze and scout talent, but yet they still fall back on that default. Ryan continues, in college football, that means the teams that are best at recruiting. So if we truly want the best teams in the playoff every year, Why don't we just end up taking the three to five year recruiting average, rank the four best teams before the season starts and tell them, hey, as long as you don't completely embarrass yourself and suffer no more than a loss or two by the end of the season, you'll automatically qualify because to my ear, that's what it sounds like is happening. Um, He makes a good point. So this is not the camp I'm in, and I want to make that perfectly clear. There is a balance that has to happen between power and merit. I'm a believer that you can hang out in both camps, and you can have a, a Venn diagram where there is a pretty healthy intersection between valuing power ratings, and I'm not talking about the standard log onto ESPN.com and see the latest power ratings from people who write for a living, all due respect to that industry, I'm in it. I'm not talking about those power ratings. I'm talking about ratings from people you know who run sports books and whatnot, odds makers, polls, a lot of advanced metrics guys that are blind and that use data, properly weighted data. Those kinds of power ratings, they're very dependable. I believe they're very dependable. There's a spot in this equation for them. But at the end of the day, I, as much as I am married to that concept, understand what the value of on-field results mean. I'm not going as far as to say I value on-field results to the point where I'm gonna blindly support a model where if you win a conference championship any given year, even though I don't know how strong the conference was that given year, if you win it, that's an automatic punched ticket to a playoff. You'll never drag me to that corner. I may have to go with you by force in the future, but you'll never voluntarily drag me to that corner. But what I am telling you is this, and Ryan actually brought up the perfect year. Ryan continues in his email, I think back to 2018 Georgia. I don't know what your stance was at the time, but I found the fact that there was a push to get that team into the playoff after getting thoroughly beaten by LSU and losing to Alabama and accomplishing, in Ryan's words, no other meaningful feats aside from winning against an overmatched Eastern division to be preposterous. He's right. I was not in the camp, and I'm parked in the state of Georgia at the time. I'm, I'm doing this show in... University of Georgia's backyard, I did not advocate for them to be in the playoff. So here is a perfect illustration of how I value the balance between merit and power. Had I taken that Georgia team and put them on the field against Notre Dame, forget about Oklahoma. Oklahoma was the four seed that year. It was Bama-Clemson, it was Notre Dame, and then it was Oklahoma. This is uh, two years ago. So Bama-Oklahoma in round one, Clemson versus Notre Dame in round one. Had I taken Georgia and put them on the field with Notre Dame, I probably would have picked Georgia to win the game. Okay, So that alone tells you, even at the end of the year, I probably thought Georgia was the more powerful team. They were the higher power rated team. But yet I did not support them being put in the playoff, which should tell you right off the cuff, it's not a blind power rating deal. I don't necessarily care that I think Georgia's roster may be a little more loaded. I care about it, but I also care about what you said. They didn't go to LSU and lose a close game. I was on the field in Tiger Stadium that Saturday. They got run out of the building. They got embarrassed. They got drugged. And then they go to Atlanta, and they lose to Alabama. And you're absolutely right with what you said there. They did not have that blend of they had the power. They didn't have the accomplishment. They didn't have the resume that was necessary for me to expect them to be included in a four-team field. Here's the problem they would have been in your eight team field. So I'm all about excellence here and only excellence. I don't want really good in the playoff. And sometimes even when we just have four teams, we're letting really good sneak in the back door. You don't have 63 and 28 as a final score in a semifinal if you have two great teams on the field. That doesn't happen. It does happen if you have a great team versus a really good team. And that was LSU versus Oklahoma this past year. So Ryan continues. Here's the fundamental disagreement. To keep in mind, I'm all about power ratings and I'm all about merit-based accomplishments on the field. I think there's a healthy balance that you can strike as part of your criteria for who should make the field. Ryan continues here. Yes, in his model, remember five conference champions, power five champions, three at-larges. That's what Ryan is supporting here. Yes, that would mean some very average conference champions would have a shot at a title every year. I don't think that's bad for the sport. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I couldn't disagree anymore. Ryan continues, sports are very rarely at their best when the most talented teams consistently win. I want to pause again and tell you I could not disagree any more strongly than I do with that statement. We continue, it's better for the growth of the game in every region for deeply flawed teams to be given the chance to overcome those flaws and achieve something truly remarkable. That's garbage. Uh, It's a great email. I'm telling you, fundamentally, when it comes to the principle in play here, that's garbage. It's not great for mediocrity to be rewarded ever. Just because if I pull out a map in any given year and draw some arbitrary lines on it, you happen to be in the right quadrant or the right section of the map. That's not good. What's good is you get your tail kicked and or and or you don't get... Uh, access to a pretty exclusive club, a 14 playoff club, and it forces you to dig deep, look yourself in the mirror, realize you're not good enough, and then elevate your game. The University of Oregon is doing this right now. The University of Oregon is not looking around the Pac-12 and saying, all we have to do is be good enough to win this conference, because that's what this model would suggest that they do. That's not what Mario Cristobal is doing. Mario Cristobal is looking around and saying, well, um, our standard's not to win the Pac-12. Our standard is to win a national championship. Our standard is to be the best in the sport. And if it means we got to be better than a team 3,000 miles across the country, then so be it. That's the kind of attitude I'd like. I've always said I value conference championships. It's part of the foundation and the bedrock that modern-day college football is built on. I don't understand why you can't value both. Now, again, I'm in SEC country, so you'll never take away the value of the SEC championship You may sometimes play in a half-empty stadium or worse in some other parts of the country, but there's big time, there's supreme value on this conference championship they play for down here. I've been at, I don't know how many in a row. There's big time passion and there is big time meaning on that game. But as soon as the confetti falls and the trophies are handed out and the lights go off in those stadiums after conference championship Saturday, it's always been my belief that you take that conference map and you take who won this region and who won that conference, and you wad it up and you throw it out. And all that's left for the purpose of selecting a college football playoff field is 130 teams on a piece of paper. And I'm taking the best four by the best possible criteria that I can come up with to not crown a champion, but to crown four participants that are going to play each other for a championship. So that's where we disagree. But I really appreciate the email, Ryan, because what he did point out is correct. I'm not all about this, get to the end of the year. And you got some conference champions and maybe you got, take Georgia from two years ago, a team that's got a lot of future NFL guys on the roster. They got really, really high recruiting rankings every year. I'm not about looking at that and saying, well, since they're really talented and we think they're capable of this, let's let them in. No, it's not about that. It's about what you've earned. But I also believe that in that, was it the same calendar year? We had an Alabama team that did not win the SEC championship. They lost in the Iron Bowl in the last week of the season. I don't even think the fact that they won the national championship is evidence that they should have been in. Forget about the result. Okay, because when you pick the playoff field, you're not aware of what the result's going to be. That's not how the committee operates. I thought Alabama belonged in, in the year that they didn't win the conference championship. Because I thought that not only were they one of the four best teams in the country, I thought that they had earned a right to be in. It's not in a vacuum it's relative to what everyone else has done in a given year. There may have been a year where Georgia could do exactly what they did in 2017 or, or 18, whatever the year was, and be ranked number seven at the end of the year. Depends on what everyone else has done. But I really appreciate that email, Ryan, cause it um, sparked a lot of inner debate for me this week. All right, let's move on. We got some other things to get to here. Ohio State uh, should really be ashamed with what they're doing on the recruiting trail right now. Uh, We got a lot of people in the chat. We really appreciate that. So um, I want to take you a little bit behind the scenes from something that happened earlier this week. I think we have to start asking the question. In fact, a lot of people already have. I'm probably a little bit late to this party. I know over on uh, the Bucknut site, you guys have been tossing this idea around about having the highest rated recruiting class in history. Some of you don't care about that. That's fine. I do. I happen to think that if you had the highest rated recruiting class in history, it's a fairly decent indicator that you're gonna have a really good roster. And good rosters, when they're managed right, more often than not get you in the playoff hunt. I don't see any bad rosters in the playoff hunt. And so I think Ryan Day and Ohio State right now, I don't think it, I know it. They're on a roll, the likes of which you have rarely have ever seen. Uh, they just landed, again, another one in the past hour that I'm not even prepared to talk about right now. I didn't even know what was gonna happen. But I'll tell you what I did know was gonna happen. I did know that Jansen Dunn was committing to Ohio State. Not because I have this network of intricate sources in Columbus, Ohio, it's because I know Steve Wiltfong. So I'm on the phone with Wiltfong the other day, and he is telling me about the roller coaster ride of Jansen Dunn. If you don't know who this is, it's a 6'2", 180 pound ish defensive back. Um, he's a top 247 player right now, and he is the 13th highest rated commitment that Ohio State has, maybe 14th after the kid that just committed. So he's um, you, you can't understand how absurd that is. This kid would be the cornerstone of some recruiting classes. He's not even uh, in the top 10 of current commitments for Ohio State. So more on that in a second. Ohio State has this kid sitting down the road in Kentucky. Uh, he's, he's highly sought after. And so Will Fong's telling me, about the roller coaster ride that's going on behind the scenes. And it looks like he's going to be a verbal to Oklahoma. And then Ohio State makes a late push. And, you know, maybe, and this is me. Now, this is my personal observation. Maybe there is some confusion as to whether there's a committable offer on the table for Ohio State. Whatever happened there, they got their ducks in a row. And Will Fong's sitting there telling me, because we're recording his a Monday Wolfong recruiting whip around. And if you haven't watched that, I highly suggest you do it. There is very little that happens in the world of college football recruiting that that guy doesn't know about. And he is one of many great ones that we have in this network. I just happen to work really closely with Steve Wolfong a lot. So he's telling me about this and they end up getting this kid. Ohio State ends up getting Janston Dunn. And so they get yet another top 247 caliber player who knows if he could get upgraded even higher. I want you to notice something, though. It's a smart move, first off. It's a very smart move. Let's just say, for example, for argument's sake, and this is not something I have confirmed, but let's just say for argument's sake, this was a situation where Ohio State's looking at their board, and this kid's not the first or second defensive back on their board, but maybe he's the fifth, sixth, seventh. That's really good, because, I mean, Ohio State's board is essentially the best of the best in the country. I've seen over the last couple of cycles with some big programs some chips be pushed in for your number one and your number two and your number three on your board at a specific position group. And late in the game, for whatever reason, it doesn't work out there. And you haven't given enough attention to the second tier kids right below that. And so they've already committed elsewhere, or there's too much invested from another program and you're not going to be able to get them. So maybe you have to settle for your third tier kids. Well, what Ryan Day could have done here is seen that well, we got a kid that's, that's upper tier two, lower tier one here. We're taking him. Can't let him get away, so they take him. It's a smart move to me. If that's what happened, it's a very smart move on their staff's part. Now, here's what I want you to pay attention to. I want you to notice, if you haven't already, notice the intensity that the Ohio State coaching staff is recruiting at. This is where you separate the casual observer from people who do this for a living. The casual observer looks at Ohio State's recruiting class right now, and they already know this number one class is locked up, now it's just a matter of how wide will the gap be between them and whoever finishes number two, and my goodness, they're gonna have talent for years. And all that may be true, But there's a reason why their coaching staff is still recruiting like their next meal depends on it. And the reason is because they understand how this game works. And they understand how the tier one of college football works. And the tier one right now is your Alabamas and Clemsons. Ohio State's firmly in that. Uh, LSU has come to this party. Oklahoma's there. I'd call Georgia being there if you're talking about comparing rosters. You'll never distance yourself from that pack. Ryan Day knows this. You can recruit lights out, lights out, lights out. And the cumulative result at the end of a three or four year period is you're still neck and neck with the other tier one teams. That's how highly a level other programs have recruited at for a little while too. You're at that party though, and Ohio State hasn't been bad recruiting. They haven't done it quite like this, but they've never been bad at recruiting since well over a decade now. You have to recruit at that level I want you to think about this for a second. Erase 99% of college football. We're just talking tier one. You got to recruit at that level, not to dominate everyone. You may dominate Rutgers. You may name the score against, um, I ain't gonna say Minnesota, cause we're gonna talk about Minnesota later cause uh, they're not doing too bad either. But you may run the score up on Purdue or get upset after four touchdown favorite. Uh, that's in the past though. But you may run the score up on that. That's irrelevant. That's not who you're competing against for a national championship. You're competing against the tier one guys for a national championship you got to recruit like this just to be favored against them. you got to recruit like this just to be a four and a half point favorite against an Alabama or a Clemson. Then you get in the arena. Then you do battle. How many times would you guys have to watch this Clemson replay from this past year to understand how razor thin the margins are between the elite teams in this sport? I thought Ohio State was the better team on the field. They didn't win the game. I thought they were the better team. I was firmly in you guys' camp when you talked about getting uh, jolted by the referees, but That's the point. If you're in a situation where one call going against you could tilt a game one way or the other, that's how tight the margins are. Now here's how a good coaching staff understands to look at recruiting even at an elite level. If you take, let's take this thermos for example. So let's pretend it's paper instead of whatever this thing's made up. You may look at this and we'll take the top off of it. You may look at this and you may think that if you put this under the sink, eventually it's going to fill up. And that's the way that some people think about recruiting. You just let the faucet run. And then if you're listening to the podcast, I'm holding a cantina in my hand. You may think if you put that under the faucet, it fills up and it does. That's a fact, but that's not the way college football works. Here's the way college football works. Everyone's got leaks. Every single program has leaks. Not one. They get multiple leaks. The best of the best. It's happened and will happen since the beginning of time to the end of time. The best sometimes get injured. And so you poke one hole. And you can still fill this thing to such a degree that you overcome the hole, but that may not be the only hole that shows up. Then all of a sudden, you stack your roster so deep, you got some transfers and some kids wanna go elsewhere for playing time. Now that's still okay, cause you're, they're transferring, cause the frontline guys are really good. But then all of a sudden, a couple of those frontline guys at a same position group go down. Then all of a sudden you've recruited circles around everyone and somehow you have a weakness. Think Alabama linebackers circa 2019 and 2018. And Alabama's recruited linebackers lights out for a long time. And so then you may have some character issues. Some guys, for no reason that has anything to do with talent, don't pan out. Then you got a couple of developmental issues, guys that just never fully maximize that potential. And so you quickly see there are a lot more holes, figuratively of course, in this cantina that is your recruiting efforts, than it looked like there was. And all of a sudden, you can keep it full. But in order to overcome the four or five holes, the four or five leaks that every program springs, what do you have to do? You have to turn up the intensity of the inflow And the water going in there so much that it looks like you have opened one of the levers on the hoover dam that's what ryan day's done but the difference between him and all these folks laughing like it's going to be some cakewalk for ohio state from now until eternity is he knows we got to do this just to be able to compete against the tier one teams that's what they're doing that's why they're not going anywhere anytime soon all they're doing is trending upward and keep in mind they're trending upward from a previous era in which they had one of the very best head coaches in the history of college football leading their program. That's all Ryan Day's done so far. So appreciate what Ohio State's doing in recruiting, but understand they're recruiting against a different game. They're not recruiting against the Big Ten. You'll never get them to say that, but in my mind, that's how I view it. They're recruiting and they're building a roster to ultimately in December and January, or whenever we end up getting to college football playoff time, they're building to measure themselves against the very best. Um, the other night we were going to do this because the bulls documentary series docu series started to come out. So I thought to myself and then I thought better of it and pushed it to tonight. What if we could do with college football, any given era, what that documentary crew did to remind you what's happening on Sunday nights on ESPN is essentially a documentary crew followed around the bulls in the 97, 98 season, and they were given full access And only now have they finished the product because Michael Jordan only a few years ago signed off on finishing the product. But basically what you're getting to see 20 some odd years, 25 years removed is what it was really like. And you get a full behind the curtain, peel back access look at what it was really like. So it's just fascinating and it's what fans want. They want information and they want access. And this kind of content gives you both. We try and do it on our show. And we're really gonna try right now so here's what we took it upon ourselves to do. We took it upon ourselves to think if we could apply that same blueprint to college football, what would you like to see? Now, obviously, we can't do this, but what would you have liked to have seen? I came up with a few. I'm going to name them for you right now. Now, to me, the title's everything here. Potential 30 for 30 or potential long form documentaries. How about this one? Changing lanes. Very, very creative with the title here, or at least we tried to be. I would love for a documentary crew to have followed Lane Kiffin from the time that he got left on that tarmac by USC to the time he crawled to Alabama, to the time he won back-to-back-to-back SEC championships there as offensive coordinator, throwing his hands up in the air before the ball has even been released for a touchdown, and he gets his shot as a head coach again down at Florida Atlantic, and he convinces the people who need to be convinced that he's turned over a new leaf, thus the changing of the lanes, as mentioned in the title, and now he's back, and he's in the SEC as a head coach, and his message to you, to me, and to everyone else is, I'm a changed man, I've learned lessons in the past that I'm now going to be able to apply, and I'm going to be able to do a lot of the same things that maybe Ed Orgeron's doing right now, Orgeron wasn't a head coach capable of winning a national championship his first go around as a head coach. Maybe he learned lessons and he's applying them now. Let's make no mistake. You can get a little bit better roster underneath your belt at LSU than you could at Ole Miss, or at least that's what people would lead you to believe. Maybe Lane Kiffin believes otherwise. Changing lanes. That's the first idea. Second idea. P.S. Bama is the title of this one. P.S. stands for a couple of things. P.S. stands for post-Stallings, and P.S. stands for pre-Saban. And what we're thinking about is essentially the wasteland, largely, that existed for Alabama as a program between the Gene Stallings era and the Nick Saban era. I don't need to remind you guys in Tuscaloosa what this consisted of, and it was not just a two, three, four-year period. So what you would love to see here is you would love to see all the inner workings and the dysfunction. And they mixed an SEC championship in the midst of all this in 1999. But you had Mike Dubose. Then you had uh, Franchoni telling you to hold the rope as he promptly drops the rope and goes to College Station. And then you had Mike Price have some fun in a hotel room and never coach a game. And then you have Mike Shula come in as NCAA sanctions are levied against the program. And so he actually does hold the rope. And Alabama's Nothing to write home about. They briefly had a blip in 05 where they went undefeated deep into the season. I think they ultimately went to the Cotton Bowl that year. But then you conclude this. You could be a 50-parter for all I care. You conclude this with Mal Moore being able to go get Nick Saban. And remember, before that, it looked for all the world like it was going to be Rich Rodriguez, only to find out that his wife was scared away from the culture in Tuscaloosa. And so, oh, we're back on the market. And so we make a second run at Nick Saban, and we get him. Tell me that wouldn't be something that was worth watching third idea the best that almost was this is all about mark Richt. mark Richt, i have stated on this show within the last month is a guy that i feel was unfairly criticized somewhat in his time at georgia and the reason that i don't feel like he was given his proper due and i do feel like he's unfairly compared to kirby smart is because Kirby Smart has access to resources that Mark Rick was never given access to. The credit goes to Kirby Smart here for convincing the people that needed to be convinced in Athens to get off their hip pocket and get off their pride and get off their sweater vest a little bit and fully invest because if you want Alabama results, you got to have Alabama investment. Mark Rick, for whatever reason, was never fully able to convince the powers that be at Georgia to invest Sunday through Friday, as I always like to say, to the degree that it took to match the results that Alabama was getting on Saturdays. But that didn't matter to people. They still held him to that standard. And I think about 2012, very, very classic SEC championship game, really famous. Alabama takes a late lead. It was uh, A.J. McCarron to Amari Cooper, and then Aaron Murray trots out there for Georgia, and they got a little bit of time left, and they're driving down the field, and they get down inside the 10, and Gary Danielson's yelling, oh, they're going to have two throws to the end zone. The only problem being one of those throws is tipped at the line of scrimmage. Some Georgia fans inexplicably suggest that the receiver should drop the ball on purpose, even though he's never trained like that in his life and the most aware football player on the planet wouldn't know to do it. Ball falls, or receiver falls with ball completed, no timeouts left, clock hits zero, Alabama goes to Miami and uh, bloodbaths Notre Dame, which I believe Georgia also would have done had they gone to Miami. How different would history be is my question. If Mark Richt ends up with one more play, let's say they win the game, just hypothetically, let's say they win the game. And he goes to Miami, and they win a national championship against uh, Notre Dame. How different are things there? Of course, Mark Richt is remembered differently. Think about how different Les Miles is remembered because he won a championship. Championships are, I don't need to say this, it's the most obvious statement in the world, but championships are really important. How important was Jimbo Fisher's championship in 2013? You think he's getting $75 million guaranteed? And a lot of those folks, by the way, that guaranteed that $75 million did it because they were so confident and uh, the consistency of the price of oil at the time. You watch the news this week. Jimbo's got it guaranteed. He doesn't care. Uh, He's not invested in oil. He's invested in football. So I just wonder, because a lot of people look at Mark Rick's time at Georgia, and they say couldn't get the job done. Okay, I mean, that's one way to look at it. Technically, no, they didn't get the job done. But what's the difference? In the caliber he had the program at, What's the difference in in having time for one more play or having a timeout in your back pocket? My point is, it, it's thinner than a piece of paper. Like Georgia was good enough to win a national championship that year, they didn't. They didn't win it. Alabama was that much better on that given Saturday, but there's a wide gulf between the revisionist perception of what Mark Richt was versus what the perception would be of him had they won that championship, which I always think's unfair. I don't think that way, but. I digress. Move on. Uh, By far, my favorite title I came up with, it was approved by Colin, who is a lot lot better film critic than I am. We're going to just throw out Slouching Tiger Hidden Champion on you right here in front of God and everyone. Slouching Tiger Hidden Champion is going to chronicle simultaneously Dabo Swinney's rise to prominence at Clemson and Ed Orgeron's rise to prominence at LSU. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a documentary crew, follow each guy, and we're going to chronicle all of the things that were said about Dabo Swinney those first few years. Do you remember when West Virginia dropped 70 on them in the Orange Bowl? you remember when Florida State came in there and just pasted them in Death Valley? All of this stuff happened. Like, Dabo Swinney was not a national champion overnight. It took a while. And he he sounded kind of goofy at times. And before he was winning championships, people took their shots at him. Same way with Ed Orgeron. That's the reason I call it Slouching Tiger, Hidden Championship, instead of Crouching, because that's kind of how people would caricature both of these guys. Just kind of, all oh, shucks, howdy doody, oh it's really good for the flavor of the sport, but no one's really taking them seriously, and now, Both of them are national champions. Dabo's won won a couple of them. Uh, Ed Orgeron looks like he's at the party to stay, and he just had probably the best season that any of us have ever seen in the history of college football. But what's most fun about this documentary is not even following the coaches themselves. Partly it is, because partly it's fun to watch them publicly play into this false persona and narrative that media has created around them. You think they're dumb? They're happy to let you think that, when behind the scenes they're running some of the highest performing organizations in the sport. That's part one. Part two of what's fun about this is to follow the same people at the beginning of Ed Orgeron's career or Dabo Swinney's career, who put out all these national headlines about what a cluster you-know-what it was to hire this guy or that guy or how far behind their program's gonna be to, at the time, Florida State for Dabo or Alabama as it relates to Ed run and then watch the same ones think that they can just whitewash history and dare to wag their finger at you after these guys have the results and say, shame on anyone who doubted these coaches. Well, this documentary throws a great big mirror in front of every one of their faces, so that would be fun. And how about number five? Now, this is one I was really close to. I'm going to call it, I'm not crazy about the title, I'm open to change, Gus's Fall for All. We're going to rewind to 2017. I think I just talked about this like a month ago. This was a period of time, the fall of 2017, was a period of time where... Mm, quarter to midway through the season, Auburn goes down to LSU. They build a twenty to nothing lead. LSU comes roaring back. I think the final was 27-21. twenty seven twenty one. Talked about the scene in the post game press conference afterwards. Half the Auburn beat guys are trashing Malzahn so loudly that Christy Malzahn, his wife, leaning on the door over here, can hear it. Uh, to her credit, she didn't say anything. She just stood there. And so everyone's got him on the hot seat. I, I cannot stress enough how much of a foregone conclusion it was in people's minds that this was it for him. He was gonna be done. The only question was, are they gonna let him finish the season? Five weeks later, he's beating Georgia, number one team in the country, Georgia. He's pasting them like 40 to 17 or something like that. And then two weeks later, he beats number one Alabama, first time in history of college football. You beat number one teams two times in a three week period. And then the week of the SEC championship game, cause they won the West, Week of the SEC championship game, this guy has gone from being on the hot seat and you know the Auburn website's putting up hot boards for who the next head coach is going to be to backing Auburn into a corner and his representation effectively backing Auburn into a corner saying, we want a new deal. And we want it agreed to, at least in principle, before we play Georgia in Atlanta this Saturday. That would be very, very, very fun to watch. So those are the five hypotheticals. thats the dream list of documentaries that I would really love to see there. We've got a lot of uh, good questions to get to right here. We're going to move through them rapid fire, and then we'll get out of here so you can watch the draft tonight. Um, I had a, you know what, I'm going to do this one first. So Sam got to me like, it feels like a month ago, doesn't it, Sam? He got to me with a Minnesota question. And um, I know you, some of you may be rolling your eyes as I pull up a website here. Some of you may be rolling your eyes. What, what are we going to waste time talking about Minnesota for? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Do you understand that as much as we just talked about Ohio State, do you know Minnesota's ranked fifth, not in the Big Ten, fifth nationally in recruiting right now? P.J. Flex doing a really, really, really good job. They're not going to finish number five in all likelihood, but I look at their commitment list. Nebraska, Illinois, Arizona, Illinois, Ohio, Georgia, Illinois, Minnesota, Minnesota, Illinois. They're going all over the place. Two Texas kids, another Ohio kid. They're going all over the place to get guys. And so Sam's question was, I saw the video on Herm Edwards, and a viewer had asked us, what is the ceiling at Arizona State under Herm Edwards? Sam asked, what is P.J. Flex ceiling at Minnesota, essentially? Um, There's a lot of hype right now. It's good hype. What I think they are is they are what Mississippi State is in the SEC. Dan Mullen proved this in his time there, and I think of Minnesota the same way. They are a program that if they recruit right, they develop right, they don't have a ton of injuries, they can build for about every three years, two, three years, three to four years, they can crescendo and they can be good enough if they catch the Big Ten and maybe a down cycle or maybe if there's big time quarterback injury at a couple of places, they could, out of nowhere, come in and shock people and win a Big Ten championship. They got to build to it. And it's still, it's a monumental task, especially given, again, what we're seeing in Columbus, Ohio right now. But behind Ohio State, that's where Minnesota could make some noise. And the only question I think is, does P.J. Fleck make so much noise that it's hard to keep him there? Because, see, I was talking back and forth with Sam, and he's a native of Minnesota, a Minnesotan, if you will. And he was talking about, the overall makeup of the state of Minnesota, it's a pro-sport state. And they're not paying attention to University of Minnesota unless UM goes a long, long way in earning that attention. And he's earned that attention. Has PJ Fleck in Minnesota's earned that attention? And so all of a sudden, it's kind of popular to talk about Minnesota football up there right now. And that's not always been the case. So there's kind of an undercurrent. I know you don't feel it in Texas or Georgia or North Carolina, but there's this kind of undercurrent in the Big Ten for hardcore Big Ten fans, and especially in Minnesota that, hey, there's something happening here. And it's an exciting program to watch right now. Kevin asked about the biggest sleeper in the draft. The NFL drafts tonight. I don't think you're going to hear this name tonight. This is such an easy answer for me. Cam Akers by 100 miles, is the biggest sleeper in this draft. You know what's funny and false that a lot of people say? A lot of people say, these days, it doesn't matter where you go to college. If you got talent, the NFL will find you. Well, that's technically true. Where are they going to draft you? When are they going to draft you? I mean, I could get drafted third overall in the first round, and you could get drafted uh, late in the sixth. I mean, we both got drafted. Like, is that what we're going for here? Cam Akers, if you go back a couple of years, I think at one time he was committed to Alabama. Uh, So was Najee Harris. And so Mr. Akers took his talents to Tallahassee. That guy played behind a garbage offensive line for a terrible, at the time, a terrible program, a badly mismanaged program. And he was on an island Down there. Cam Akers is a stud. Cam Akers is probably going to make a lot of money and play for a long time in the NFL. And the only reason, one of the only reasons in my mind, you're not going to hear his name tonight in the first round is because of where he went to college. Now, it may be that Mike Norvell gets things in a couple of years to where that's once again the place to go to get developed and go first round. But it wasn't that under Willie Taggart, to say the least. It wasn't that. So I don't want to hear all this. Oh, it doesn't matter where you go. If you're talented, the NFL will find you. You only got one chance to maximize your value in college. You only got one chance to cash in on that big rookie deal, and you're not guaranteed a second deal. So it very much matters where and when you go to college, if you have those kinds of options, which he did. Devin asked, if Notre Dame does not make the college football playoff this year, is it time to move on from Brian Kelly? No. No unequivocally no. I talked to Brian Kelly this morning, actually, for about 30 minutes, very kind to take time and talk to me. And I asked him point blank, I said, you're not in tier one. Talk about tier one earlier tonight. You're not in tier one of college football, but yet you've won back to back to back double digit seasons. I would say that Notre Dame, probably their foundation is as solid as it's been in at least a generation, if not a couple of generations how confident are you? You can finally elevate to tier one. I mean, you hadn't won a championship. That's what I said to him. You hadn't won one. That's why people don't perceive you as being there. And he was adamant. He said, no, we hadn't gotten there. We will get there. I'm going to release that full interview Monday, by the way, or Tuesday, I believe it's slated to be released. He said, we will get there. I'm adamant. I'm very confident that we will get there. And I told you, uh, for my money, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I believe that they have to land a game-changing quarterback. Either that or they have to develop one. And if they do that, I think a lot of those other tumblers fall into place. It's just so easy to say, sitting at a desk, and it's so much harder to do it. This is not, it sounds like I'm going back a long way. This is not 2009, 10, 11 anymore, where all due respect, you could win a championship with Greg McElroy. Today, Look at the teams that win and look at the quarterback. Look at the quarterbacks that aren't even good enough to win a national championship because of the other ones that are. You gotta be dynamic. You gotta have a star at quarterback. That's what it takes for Notre Dame. Uh, Jared asks, how about the draft? How does it affect a program and how are programs viewed? I imagine it's along the lines of the more drafted players equals the better you are. Is there any other perspective you can add? If so, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I uh, take Miami, for example. Miami, I kind of got into it the other day about when we were talking about blue blood programs, historic blue blood programs. And I didn't put Miami there only because I said, you know, prior to the eighties, there's not a long track record of um, winning doesn't have anything to do with them today. But one of the guys came back and said, what are you talking about? Miami sends a lot of players to the draft. Yeah. that's not a good thing considering where you've been lately. That's an indictment on the state of the program. That's not a good thing because you're right. You go back and look at Miami's draft history, I mean, they haven't littered the first round like they've been known to do, but they've sent a healthy amount of guys to the NFL draft. And all the while, I pull up their record and I look in the ACC, no less, this is the best that you've been able to do even with all these NFL guys on your roster. So let's say, to go back to Jared's question here, the perception of a program, in this case the NFL draft is actually hurting the short-term future of Miami's program, and here's why. If I'm recruiting against Miami, all I'm telling a kid, this is nothing personal, Miami. This is just reality. If I'm going up against you on the trail, if I'm Dan Mullen, and I'm going up against Manny Diaz, even though Manny Diaz has very little to do with this problem right now because he hadn't been there long enough, I'm saying, they send guys to the league, we send guys to the league. Here's the problem. Look at the guys they're sending to the league, And then look at how much they're underachieving even with those guys. For all you know, high school senior, those third and fourth rounders are really first rounders. It's just they're not being developed because it's obvious they don't have their you-know-what in order down there. If they did, they'd be winning with these NFL guys. And in turn, instead of going third, fourth round, a lot of them would be first or second round. Come play here. We don't obviously have any problem sending kids to the league. Look at our track record. But we're winning as we send kids to the league. That's what I would do. It'd be one thing if they weren't sending guys to the NFL. Because then if I'm Manny Diaz, all I have to do is say, well, we just hadn't been talented enough. I mean, once we're talented enough, we'll win. That's not what Miami can say right now. They've been mismanaged. they can been underdeveloped. Whatever you want to say, talent hasn't been the issue. Maybe skill has. And there's a big difference between the two. Uh, a lot of talented, unskilled players out there. But that's how I would... That's really what I go to when I talk about how the draft affects the perception of a program, aside from the obvious. Got a lot of folks in the chat tonight. We started an hour early. I assume somebody's going to show up in about 15 minutes and be mad, but you can watch the replay. Before you leave, I would ask that you click that thumbs up button on the way out to give us a like. And I told you, before we go off the air, I'm going to tell you about the podcast. So the Late Kick podcast, wherever you download your podcast, you can find us or just click the link in the show description below. Here's what we're going to do. I get so many good questions and i tell you give me the questions for the q a and i don't have time to put them all in the show so i figure if we're going to do some bonus content on the podcast right now why not let you drive it and so what i'm going to do is you may not know i've done it but i'm going to accumulate as many questions as i can from the chat when i go back and look at it before i trim the video at the very end and i'm going to take the stuff that you email me the stuff that you dm me on twitter and I'm just going to put it into as rapid fire format as I can. I'm going to probably have this debuting next week. So on the Sunday show, I should have a finalized timeline for you. And then our podcast wizards, Tani and Connie, Connor can give me a better guidance on it. And so we'll hope to roll that out next week sometime, but I want to get you as involved in the show as possible because it is your show and not my show. So aside from that, it's time to go watch the draft tonight. We appreciate you being here. We'll be back Not the same time. We'll be back at the normal time. Sunday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. This is The Late Kick. I'm Josh Pate for Connor, Tani. Yeah, I'll throw them in there too. Mainly for Colin and for Aaron and for everyone here. Thanks for watching. Have a great night.